Chapter 15 of The Heart of Hyacinth by Anato Watana Hyacinth did not slacken her pace until she was before her home. Then, with trembling fingers, she undid the gate, sped up the little adobe path, and burst breathlessly into a guest chamber, where Ayoi was quietly and pensively arranging blossoms in a vase. Ayoi turned with mild surprise at the girl's entry, but when she saw her face, the mother hastened towards her. Why, something has affrighted the little one. Array, moshi moshi. Well, she should not have followed the strangers. There, tell it all to the mother. She drew the trembling girl to the soft padded floor and placed her arm reassuringly about her. But Hyacinth seized both her foster mother's hands and held them in a spasmodic, almost fierce clasp. They're going to come for me. Oh, yes, yes, they will take me away. Oh, what can I do? What? They tell me. Oh! She broke down utterly, her throat choked with her sobs. Why? What does the little one mean? She could not respond. She clung to Ayoi fearfully. There were heavy, quick steps coming up the garden path, then a pause before the door. The next moment, loud raps. The young girl's trembling fear communicated itself to Ayoi, and the two now clung together fearfully, listening with strained ears to every sound. They heard the shuffling sound of Mumei's feet in the hall, then the gruff, deep voices of the callers, and a few moments later the men were ushered into the guest chamber of Madame Ayoi. The mission was soon explained. They understood that seventeen years ago an American lady had died in her home, which was then in a village on the shore of the bay. She, Madame Ayoi, they understood, had adopted the child, having failed to find the father. He, on his part, had only just succeeded in tracing the child's whereabouts. It was believed that she, Adam Ayoi, was still in possession of her. Although Ayoi made no denial, she made no admission. She looked at the girl she had brought up as her own child, with dry eyes and quivering lips. The young girl looked back at her with piteous, imploring eyes. Ayoi closed her lips and refused even to answer the strangers. But after a space the girl herself stepped towards them, and, raising her face defiantly, said, Foreigners, you make ridiculous mistake. Yet, supposing you do not make mistake, what will you do? Send immediately for the father. And then? He is your legal and natural guardian. You, of course, would have to go with him. The lawyer did not hesitate to pronounce her the one for whom they had sought. Leave Japan? she asked her bosom heaving. You are not Japanese. You see, I take it for granted, you are the girl in question. Yes, she said. I am that girl in question. My mother's clothes, they are English. Excellencies do not make mistake. I, I foolish to deny that. But, but what he, that father, going to do if I will not go with him? You are under age, said the lawyer. He can force you. Force me to leave my home she said softly. Force me to leave Japan? No. You belong to his home. It is some fatal and horrible miscarriage of fate that has cast your destiny among this alien people. Not alien, she said fiercely. My people, my... She broke off and almost staggered towards Ayai, against whom she leaned as if for support. Go away, go, she cried to them. Excuse our rudeness, but... But, alas, we are in sorrow. She sank to the ground, burying her face, 
and sobbing piteously. My eyes stepped falteringly towards them. Goodbye, Excellencies. Pray you come tomorrow instead. We will be in good health then. Goodbye. Silently the two men left the house. They were quite far down the street before either spoke again. Then, Good heavens, it is grotesque, impossible, horrible, said the younger man. She is more Japanese than anything else. But her face, it, by George, I haven't words to express myself. I thought to render a splendid service to the little girl. Yet now, well, I feel like a criminal. Chapter 16 After the departure of the strangers, I and Hyacinth, clinging to each other, had gone to the young girl's chamber, where they had shut themselves in alone. The suddenness of the blow had robbed them of the power of even talking it over. The tension of the strain might have been relieved had they done so, but they sat in silence together throughout the night. My eye appeared to be dazed, stunned, while the feelings of the girl were mixed. The phantoms of her ever-active mind were tangled but painful. She was to be torn by force from her home, to be taken away from all she loved. She would never see Ayai again. Ayai, her mother, whom she loved deeply, devotedly. She would be carried away to a country where the people lived like barbarians and beasts, a country barren of beauty, cold, cruel. All this the misguided sensei had told her more than once. He felt sure she would languish and become mortally sick there, if she ever reached that distant country. But how would she cross the great, horrible ocean that lay between? Yes, she was quite sure she would die before she reached that America, and she did not want to die. Life had been very sweet for her, and she was so young. Slow tears of self-pity slipped from her eyes and dropped down, and dropped upon her little clasped hands. She looked across at the immovable figure of Royoi, sitting in the dusky room before her, like a statue. She wondered vaguely what Royoi was thinking about, how she did love that dear, small mother. She moved a pace closer to her. Royoi parted her lips as if to speak, then closed them, as though words failed her. Hyacinth covered her face with her hands. How long they sat thus together she could not have told. Her thoughts had become blurred and distant. Later, when Ayoi roused herself from her own painful self-communings, she perceived that the young girl had fallen asleep. Her little head rested uncertainly against the wall panelling, and Ayoi saw the undried tears still upon the white, childish face. She gently placed a pillow beneath the girl's head, and softly threw over her the slumber robe. Then she extinguished the one andam which had dimly lighted the room. She did not, however, retire to her own chamber that night, but lay down beside the girl, creeping under the same robe which covered her. The following morning brought one of the unwelcome strangers again to the house of Madame Ayoi. He was the younger one of the two, and had stood by silently while his companion explained the motive of their call. Mume had seen him lingering and hesitating at the gate of the garden for some time, before he suddenly pushed it open and walked a few paces swiftly up the path, paused in thought a moment, and then continued to the house. He had evidently expected at least a polite reception, and was much disconcerted 
when the scowling face of the now hostile Mume confronted him at the threshold. This oriental virago deigned at first no word of question as to the desire of the caller, but when he had stammeringly stated in uncertain Japanese that the object of his visit was to see Madame Ayoi, she broke out into vigorous and violent Japanese abuse. What did this devil of a barbarian want? How dared he soil the threshold of her august mistress's house? All the fields of Hades were pestering them lately, it seemed, but she, Mume, was not to be frightened by any such fiends as he. He had scared the little one and her mother quite speechless. She, Mume, would defend them from further violence at his hands, and he had better be gone at once, or she would set the whole community upon him and have him stoned and beaten. In the midst of this harangue she was interrupted by the interposition of Hyacinth, who had arrived upon the scene, and had stood silently in the background for some time, quietly listening to the fluent Mume. Then she stepped forward and spoke a few low words in Japanese to Mume. The young man could not have told from the expression of her face whether she had reproved the servant or not. When the angry Mume, muttering and scowling at every retreating step, had disappeared, the girl turned questioningly to the caller. She did not invite him to enter, and though her words were courteous, he thought her eyes antagonistic. He noticed, too, that there were shadows beneath the eyes, and that she was very pale. As he continued to gaze at her face, she slowly and unwillingly flushed. Your business, honourable sir, what is it you desire? You'll excuse me, I'm sure, but I came over, er, uh, I came over by the request of Mr. Knowles. You remember Mr. Knowles? He paused to gain time, still hoping she would bid him enter, but the expression of her face was totally forbidding, and at his question she merely inclined her head with the faintest, most frigid smile on her lips. It seemed to the anxious young man that she must see through his flimsy ruse. As a matter of fact, all she thought was that here again was that odious stranger the gods going to pester her forever with their company. The thought nauseated and embittered her. If you will allow me a moment of your time, the young man stammered, I can easily explain. Again she inclined her head without speaking, as though she conceded the moment of time, but had no intention that it should be granted anywhere else. He marvelled that the deliciously blushing and ingenuously coquettish girl of the previous day could have changed to this cold and impassive little stiff figure with the dignity of a woman. Mr. Knowles, you see, being a great friend of your father and mine, we naturally feel that uh, we both wish to express our, our respects for his daughter. Thanks, she said laconically. And if you would do me the honour, he added, taking courage from the one word she had allowed herself, we would... Very much like to have you, and of course, your madam, ah, ah, he floundered hopelessly. Madam Ayoi, said the girl, distantly. He could not have told how he had happened to invite them to dinner. Certainly it wouldn't do to have them come at once. There was the attorney to be considered, Mr. Knowles, who knew nothing of his visit, and might, after all, disprove of it. We'll send you word, just when to come, he concluded lamely. He saw her lip curl disdainfully, and guessed aright that she was thinking him atrociously uncouth and rude in delivering so ambiguous an invitation. She said, 
We are ten million times grateful, but we don't can come. She paused ominously a moment, then, slightly moving backward into the hall, she said, That's all your business, yes? Yes, he said, confounded. She closed the sliding doors between and left him standing there, facing it, without.